ARE Study Guide Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the ARE Study Guide Podcast. In this episode, we are going to look at mitigating risk and resolving conflicts. This is objective 5.2 for the project management exam. Part of this objective that we are not going to actually cover in this episode, but something that you should make a note of to make sure you study, it says in this objective to be able to identify the level of completion at each phase of the project. I don't know why they throw that in there. There's this long list of things related all to risk, quality control, liability. And then it says, and identify level of completion of each project phase. So that's not really related to mitigating risk, or maybe it is. And I'm missing the link there. But um, I've said this at the first episode. Make sure you know what the project activities are that go with each project phase. A good way to do that is to look at the owner-architect agreement, and that spells out the specific activities that are included with each project phase. So take a look at that contract and know which activities are supposed to be completed at each project phase. Again, we're not going to look at that in this episode, so make a note to do that. All right, so risk. The level of risk that you assume as an architect should directly correlate to your compensation. Whenever you take on more risk with a project, you need to increase your fee. Don't think that's something you'll be tested on, but that is definitely a good rule of business. Factors that influence the architect's risk. Number one, the client. Fussier clients are riskier clients. Does the client have money to pay you? Will they have money to pay you later? Number two, the project delivery method. Contractor-led design build provides less risk for the architect, assuming the architect and contractor have a good relationship. Number three, the project schedule. Fast-tracking a project means that it's going to be riskier than traditional project schedules. Number four, construction cost. The owner-architect agreement requires that the architect redesign for free if the original design is over budget. In real life, you may omit this from your contract, but we are tested based on the contract documents in their original form. So architects are supposed to redesign for free if their design is over budget. So if the budget is really small and it's going to be hard to design within that budget, meaning there's a low construction cost and you're going to have to do more work to redesign it later, you should account for the time to potentially redesign later. So this would be a form of a contingency. This is a tricky thing, right? Because if you have a project with a really big budget, it means you're going to have to design more elements, which will take more time. But if you have a project with a really limited budget, you might have to spend more time redesigning, so you'll have to spend more time. So you have to look at those things and figure out how much time realistically it will take you. And if you have 
previous project data to look at, you could see how long similar projects took you to complete. Anytime there's a change to the standard of care, meaning the owner is expecting a higher than normal level of quality, you should charge more to deliver at that level. If you use a contract document other than the AIA documents, you need to really review that contract and look out for ambiguous or broad phrases that increase the architect's liability without precisely defining the scope or responsibilities. Any broad phrases could set you up for some litigation trouble in the future. And again, that's more risk, so you should be compensated more because if you go to court later, you need to make sure you have the funds to cover your lawyer fees. And of course, the risk could just come from the project itself. Is it a weird site with special conditions? Are there going to be public approval requirements that are going to require more time on your part? Or is there a greater risk for unknown conditions? When you do a remodel, there's a lot of potential unknown conditions, and you need to account for that. Projects are seldom as straightforward as we'd like to think that they're going to be. So you have to really spend the time up front to look at that to make sure that you're compensated or that you even want to take it on. Yes, if you're going to take on a project that's riskier, you should get compensated more for it. But you also need to really consider, is this a burden you want to take on? And if you meet a client and they are super fussy, I mean, maybe people are tougher than I am, but I wouldn't really want to work with that client. If you're going to make my life miserable, yeah, I'm just going to avoid that, right? Why, why bother? But, or maybe that doesn't bother you, right? So you just charge more. Ways to avoid or reduce risk. Just avoid risky projects or risky clients. You can transfer the risk through the contract terms. So if things like unknown conditions or uh, if you anticipate a longer public approval process, you can put things in the contract that cover you for those costs. It could be in the form of additional services or it could be in the form of putting the liability for certain things specifically on the owner. If it isn't spelled out, make sure that it is. You can choose to accept the risk, but in addition to covering the amount of money that you need for your actual time, you should have a higher insurance policy. Get extra protection from the insurance, especially if you think there's potential litigation issues related to the risk. Spend more on insurance and then just charge the client for that extra insurance cost. Only begin work when you have a signed agreement that goes for everything, but specifically if it's a really risky project, do not start work until you have a good agreement signed. Do not make false promises. Never guarantee or warranty anything. You can do things to the best of your ability, but do not make promises about how a building is going to perform. When you report on the status of something, Try to add phrases such as, to the best of my knowledge, or in my professional opinion. Don't say, this is the way it is, because if it isn't that way, and you go to court later, the client can say, you told me this was this. So when you're looking at the contractor's work is a good example, and you have to say that they have met um, whatever milestone, you could say, to the best of my knowledge, they have 
met the contract terms for this milestone. In your contract, have a well-defined scope of service. Always try to avoid modifying the standard of care because if you modify that, the client is going to expect unrealistic things from you and they might even expect you to pay for mistakes and your liability insurance will typically not cover you beyond the typical level of standard of care. So if the client wants to modify the standard of care, you could say, sorry, no can do, my insurance won't cover me. That could be a great way to get out of that. Remove any client added clauses that make you responsible for third-party claims. So in general, always look at the original AIA document B101, Owner Architect Agreement. Always look at that alongside the contract that you're actually going to sign to see which things have been modified. Never assume responsibility for the contractor's means and methods. As soon as you tell the contractor how to do something, you become liable for their means and methods, so avoid that. The owner might try to save money by not having the architect around for construction. You should try to insist on being around for construction administration. This can help you prevent claims in the future because when you see things go wrong, you can notify the owner and have these things in writing and get them resolved or have the client say in writing that they're okay with the deviation from the contract documents. Review your consultant agreements thoroughly. And just like with the owner architect agreement, look for anything that has been added or removed or modified from the original AIA document C401 architect consultant agreement. Anything that's different from that, you need to you need to look at what is that difference? What kind of risk does that set you up for? And again, you either need to correct that agreement or maybe not work with that consultant if you're at a standstill with certain terms. If you need to ever start work before a full agreement can be drafted and negotiated, use a notice to proceed agreement. The notice to proceed agreement will supply the initial scope of work and the payment terms. So you never start work without an agreement, but if the full agreement is just too much um, for a big project, you know there could be a lot that goes into that agreement. At the very least, you have a notice to proceed agreement, so you have a description of the initial scope of services and the payment terms. This will help ensure that you get paid and that you and the client are on the same page in terms of the services that you're going to be fulfilling. Public projects. So compared to private projects, public projects inherently are going to have more risk because public projects are in the spotlight. So they are going to be under public ridicule based on how the government is using its money. Um, People are going to have more opinions that you're going to have to listen to and to take into consideration. And in general, um, I live in San Francisco and everyone here is an expert on architecture. Just ask them. And they love telling you their opinions in really loud ways. And unfortunately, you have to listen to everybody, even when their opinions are really bad. So that process of public comments can really create a lot of problems. Uh, I mean, it is good to hear from people, but... uh, There's a lot of people that, you know, 
they're just going to be really fussy. And especially the bigger the project, the bigger the public project, the more headaches you're probably going to have, especially if you're trying to do anything innovative. So that's going to be more risk. Uh, Public projects are going to have harsher than normal contract conditions. There's going to be lower profits. It's going to be harder to develop a strong relationship with the client because public officials might change over the course of the project and also just the layers of bureaucracy. You're going to be dealing with lots of people, um, lots of points of contact, and again, lots of opinions. And, you know, suddenly everyone's an expert and they just want to tell you all of their opinions. So public projects have more risk than private projects. Project Claims A claim is when a party requests a change of the contract terms. Typically, this means the contractor is asking for more time or money. That's a claim. Claims are submitted in writing to the other party and the initial decision maker. So, again, if it's the contractor asking for more time or money, they're submitting this to the owner and the initial decision maker, which is basically a mediator. And per the AIA contract documents, This person is going to typically be the architect. So when the claim is received, there are a few things that could happen. The claim could be approved. The claim could be rejected. The initial decision maker might come up up with a compromising solution without accepting or rejecting the claim. The initial decision maker might ask for more information based on who's submitting the claim they will have 10 days to respond with additional information. If the claim is related to something that requires specialized knowledge that the architect doesn't know about, uh, maybe a specialized system, the architect isn't really the right person to approve the claim, then a consultant will be brought in that will assess the claim and the fees for that consultant will be placed on the owner. And another option when a claim is brought up, the initial decision maker might say, uh, there's not enough evidence here, or it's not ethical for me to make a decision on this issue. So that could just be the decision. So if the architect or the other initial decision maker, whoever the contract stipulates is the initial decision maker, If they make a decision regarding the claim and either party is not satisfied with that decision, the next step is going to be mediation. Mediation occurs before arbitration or litigation. And per the AIA contract documents, the parties are required to resolve their disputes first through mediation. Mediation is non-binding and both parties the contractor and owner, are going to share the fees for mediation. Mediation will occur on the project site unless another location is agreed to. And if one party does not agree with the results of the mediation, they will have to go to the next form of dispute resolution, which is going to either be arbitration or litigation, which is going to be established in their contract. So arbitration is legally binding, And that's when a third party helps resolve the issue by hearing both sides of the story, reviewing the evidence, and then they make a decision that can't be repealed. 
So it's going to be a cheaper process than litigation, which is going to court. Uh, the benefit of going to court is that those decisions can be repealed. So if the issue goes to court, the resolution process is going to take a lot longer and the process is going to be much more costly. But unlike arbitration, the decisions made through litigation can be appealed. Negligence. All right. So we just talked about primarily an owner-contractor conflict, but let's talk about negligence. Negligence is a claim against an architect for an error or omission. Architects are responsible for the cost of their errors and a fraction of the cost of their omissions. The exact laws for this will vary by jurisdiction. There are four factors required to prove an architect's negligence. One, architect's duty. Architect's duty is what the architect was or wasn't legally obligated to do. Two, breach. The architect didn't do something they were supposed to do, or they did something they weren't supposed to do. Three, cause. The architect's mistake caused the damage. Four, damage. There is damage as a result of the architect's mistake. So again, four factors required to prove an architect's negligence, the architect's duty, breach, cause, damage. A, B, C, D. Architect's duty, breach, cause, damage. If the architect is found guilty of negligence, they are responsible for the cost of the damages related to their negligence. Breach of contract. Breach of contract is when an architect didn't do what they were supposed to do per the contract. So part of this risk and claim stuff is standard of care. And we're not going to look at that. We looked at that previously in the construction and evaluation section of the podcast. So look at episode 30, standard of care. It's a short episode, nine minutes long. Look at that episode, and that's going to be really important related to this whole concept of risk. All right, so next up, we are going to dive into quality control and wrap up our section on project management. See you all on the other side. Bye.